Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So I hope you get starting to get the picture of why the story of Hosea is one of the most powerful books in the Bible. It has a force and a potency like no other. And um, the book of Hosea is going to smash any weak understandings of God and grace and mercy and love and judgment and holiness and wrath. You see, you cannot read the book of Hosea and say, that's nice. It's not nice. It's usually powerful and awe-inspiring and life-transforming, but it's not nice. You know, one of the big bugbears for me, people think Christianity is nice. It's for nice people who do nice things. It's nice that children grow up learning good morals. Hosea says Christianity is not about being nice. It's full of pain and hardship, passion and love, jealousy and wrath, punishment and mercy. It's not nice. Isn't it a shame we've lost the Christianity of the Bible and made it nice? Uh, Chapter 3, as we're going to see, is really not nice. Uh, But it's a passage brimming with explosive implications. There was one famous preacher called James Boyce who said Hosea chapter 3 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. And we'll see if he's right, shall we? Um, So what's it all about? Well, let's just recap the story and then we'll draw some implications. So it starts like this. Go again and love your adulterous wife. The Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. So what's happening? The cycle is being repeated, and that's why the word again is so important. Hosea is once again being told by God to go and love this adulterous wife. But it's a bit worse than the first time. Because you notice that she is at the moment shacked up with another man. Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another. So this is going to put Hosea through incredible pain. You can imagine Hosea thinking to himself, well, what if I go round and I catch them in the act? What happens if I go round and they're both standing in the doorway with towels around their waist? What happens if I have to look in that man's face? But again, that's the point. God is saying, yeah, go and understand how hard it is for me to keep looking on my bride, my people. So that's why he says, love her as the, Israelite, the Lord loves the Israelites, though they run and turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Uh, raisin cakes. Love her as I love my people. They are currently shacked up with other idols, false lovers. Now what are these raisin cakes all about? They're probably the food you'd eat at the festivals of Baal. And so it's part of this symbol. But the other thing I think it is, is it's super trivial. Israelites are running after raisin cakes instead of the Lord Almighty. How ridiculous. But every single idol needs to be exposed for being ridiculous. It's brilliantly portrayed in the film The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. What is Edmund? What is the thing, his weakness? He will portray his family to overcome his own insecurities and follow the wicked white witch for the sake of Turkish delight. How pathetic. 
and yet only would we look at our false lovers, as pathetic as that. So Israel are running after sacred raising cakes when there's a feast of God, there's a feast that God wants to give them. So Gomer's at it again, throwing herself into the arms of a lover. God's people are at it again, and obviously we find ourselves in that cycle of often being back in it again. So Gomer's committed adultery with the other men. She's had children by these other men. And now she's living with one of it. Can it get any worse for Hosea? Oh, yes, it can. By her back. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Now, what is he talking about buying her back? When do you ever buy people? You buy people when they're in slavery and you buy them out of slavery. You see, Goma is up for sale. She's up for auction. Why? Well, either she's got herself into so much debt, she needs someone to buy her out of it and buy her out of the debt. Or more likely, her owner, her pimp, one of the men she ran after, who runs a prostitute business, realises that she's so used and so abused and so tatty from all her illicit sex that she's no longer actually any use even as a whore. Her usability is run out. Who would want her now? No one wants anyone, not even as a prostitute. She's defiled. She's hopeless. She's dirty. So the pimp cuts his losses and puts her up for sale to see if he can make a final bit of money from this woman's body. And here Hosea comes along to the market and the bidding begins. Goma is probably completely naked so everyone can make sure they get a good look of what they're going to pay. Don't want to pay too much. And the prices start to go up. One pound, two pounds, three pounds. The men jeer and bid for this pathetic prostitute. Maybe her children are watching, wondering what her fate would become. Where does she look? I mean, it's so shameful and humiliating. Or or maybe she's beyond shame and she's so desensitized and abused at this stage. Four pounds, five pounds. The money slowly creeps up as different men vie for her. A bit like the scene in Taken, when Liam Neeson's child is taken and uh, trafficked. And at the end, they're bidding for the virgin. Now, Goma's no virgin, but the men are all bidding for her. But what's this? There's a new voice in the crowd, and she recognises it. Six pounds, seven pounds. She's heard it before. Who is, she knows it too well. It's her husband, Hosea. What the heck is he doing here? After all I've done, why is he showing up? Eight pounds, nine pounds, ten pounds. I know. He's come here to buy me back, to get me back. To punish me for all my wrongdoing. Just when I thought it couldn't get any worse. Eleven pounds, twelve pounds. And finally the final offer, fifteen shekels of silver. And a homer and a lethek of barley. Sold to the man at the back. Hosea buys his wife back. Roughly for thirty shekels. The amount you'd buy an Old Testament slave for. But the suspense continues. What's he going to do? Is he going to beat her? Is he going to pay her back for all the years of desertion and unfaithfulness and vile adultery? Is Hosea full of bitterness and anger and revenge? Is he going to throw it in the gutter and leave it a rot? Surely she deserves it. No. Hosea wants to make a home with Gomer. Then I told her, you will live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or intimate with any man, and I will live with you. He pays the price for her freedom, but he wants to take 
her back. And do you see it says you cannot be intimate with any man? Hosea's putting himself in that category. You can't be intimate with any man. You mustn't have sex with any man. Why? Well, an Old Testament scholar whose commentary I read said this. There was a realism as well as a symbolism in the probationary period of verse 3. Its larger meaning is spelt out in verses 4 to 6. But within the marriage, there were disloyal habits of years to be broken. broken, And the realities of personal relationship, which had hitherto stopped at the physical level, which had to be unhurriedly explored together. What he's saying here is, Hosea wants his wife back as a wife, as the mother of his children. So he sets a probationary period and says, you can't be intimate with anyone. You can't have sex with anyone. Why? Because there's so many painful conversations that need to happen, Goma, between you and me, if we're to be husband and wife again. Forgiveness can occur, but there's got to be a period of calling off here. And I actually want you back and when I, want, when I have sex with you next, I want it to be special again. There must be a probationary period. Gomer doesn't just want to buy his wife out of slavery. He wants her back as a wife. He wants to restore her. He wants to commit to her again. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? The prodigal son says to his father, give me my share of the inheritance early. Saying to his father, I wish you were dead because that's when you got your inheritance. He runs off, he squanders it on wild living and on prostitutes. He's in a far off land. (coughs) And then he ends up really bad because of a famine. And so he ends up feeding feeding pigs, which for a Jew was a pretty horrendous thing. And he wished he could eat what the pigs were eating, that's how bad it got. This guy's pretty low. And he thinks, you know what, it'd be better if I go back home, I could be like a hired worker in my father's estate. So he comes back and he's got this plan. To say, I'm not worthy to come back as a son. Just take me as a hired worker. And do you remember, the father runs to him. And puts a ring on his finger and a robe on him. He kisses him and gives him a hug and he embraces him. He puts sandals on his feet and he kills the fattened calf and says, we have to have a party. My son is back. The father won't let him get the speech out about being a hired worker. The father's like, I don't want you back as a hired worker. I want you back as a son. You're my son. I'm going to restore you. And Hosea is saying, I want you back as a wife. I want to restore you. But let's have some realism about what that's going to be like. This is extraordinarily costly love. But of course, we've seen that what's happening with Hosea and Gomer is what's happening with God and Israel. So that's what we see here. He then unpacks it in verses 4 to 6 about Israel is going to be exiled, remember, to Assyria and Babylon, and then going to return. But it's going to have a price. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without effort or idols. So basically Israel are going to go into a land where all the things that they used to worship God with, aside from idols, will not be there. No king, no prince, no sacrifice, no sacred stones, all the things that were part of Jewish culture. Afterwards... The Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. So what is he talking about? Israel is going to go off and have a probationary period. The northern ten tribes are going to have a hundred years. The southern tribes are going to have seventy years. Assyria is first going to come and conquer. And then Babylon is going to conquer. But afterwards, he says they're going to return and seek the Lord as if something's happened in the heart. 
I'm going to seek David their king. But wait a minute. David's dead. David's not going to come back to life. So Hosea was pointing forward to one of David's descendants, a king from the line of Judah who would establish a new kingdom. Now this is just a bit of interesting Hebrew. Hosea really should be Hoshea. Hoshea and Joshua come from the same root word to save. When you translate Joshua from Hebrew into Greek, you get Jesus. So Hoshea. And Jesus, Mary was told to call him Jesus. In Matthew 1.22 it says, Because he will save his people from their sins. So, think about it. Hosea was told to go marry a prostitute so he could understand God's heart and feel the reality of what God was feeling with his people. But if God really wanted to save his people, if God really wanted his people back, if he really wanted to set them free from false lovers and fulfill his promises to Abraham and say to those that were not his loved ones, you're loved again, he would actually have to enter our world and feel the reality of us putting ourselves in the arms of false lovers. He would feel the pain of nails going through his arms and legs. He'd feel the pain and the shame of being mocked at, punched in the face and spat upon. He'd feel humiliation after having a crown of thorns thrust on his head and his blood-stained purple robe draped on him, the false king, they were going to call him. He would feel the anguish of one of his best friends betraying him for 30 shekels of silver, the price of a common slave. Another of his best friends would deny him three times and the rest would flee from the scene. And most of all, he would feel the agony of being rejected by God. He would be called not loved, not my son. He would pay the price for our freedom. He would, pay the pun- he would take the punishment for all our sins. He would deal with all the mess of our spiritual adultery. Hosea gets a glimpse of the sufferings of Jesus when he pays the price for Gomer's freedom. But for Jesus to free us from slavery, he must become the tatty, dirty, naked, beaten one. Not at the slave market, but on the cross. And Jesus doesn't want to just forgive our sins. He wants to do that. But he wants to restore us and have us back. So the story of Hosea finds its fulfillment not in Hosea buying his adulterous wife back at the slave market. But in Jesus buying us back at the cross. There we see the depths of his love and the agony of what our sin does to him. We literally pierce his heart and he has to die. It it means he dies. It's that bad. So what does this mean for us? We're going to return fully to the Lord. Very briefly, we're going to look at the cost of forgiveness. We have to separate from our idolatrous behaviour. And our hearts have to totally change. You see, there's a school of thinking that basically says, you know what, sin doesn't really matter. God forgives you. He loves everyone. It doesn't matter what you do. Just say a quick prayer afterwards and he'll forgive you. And we treat God's forgiveness so lightly. We think it's so easy for God to forgive us. And this leads us to what people call cheap grace. We don't take the love and forgiveness of God seriously. We 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 treat it lightly. It's cheap. But can you see the story of Hosea says, you can't treat this cheaply. You can't. You're killing God here. You're literally killing him on the cross. But every time we sin, forgiveness is not easy for God. It's free for us, but it's not easy for God. It costs him everything. Let me unpack this a bit in how relationships work. You see, in a relationship, when someone you love hurts you, you have two choices. Well, three. 
But the two choices we typically take to protect ourselves is, I'm going to shut myself off from this person so I don't engage with them. You give them the cold shoulder. So you're paying them back with silence. Or you go, I'm going to retaliate with anger. Ah, you hurt me! And you come back at them. But either way, a gap is created between you and that person. And the relationship will be in ruins. Someone hurts you, you feel so much pain, you love them and they've hurt you back and I'm going to give them the cold shoulder. No, I'm going to retaliate with anger. The only way for that gap, that barrier to be dealt with is if the person that's hurt absorbs the pain themselves and forgives. But forgiving is not easy in that scenario. It costs you, it's so hard to say you are forgiven. To be reconciled means to be forgiven. To be forgiven means someone has to absorb the pain. Let me just give you an example. So I remember, it must have been over five years ago, I really hurt Leanne. And I wasn't malicious, it wasn't intentional, but I was very stupid and careless. And I really hurt her. And the thought of coming home from work that day was a horrible thought to me. I was very nervous. And when I came home, Leanne couldn't look at me. She was too upset. I'd heard of that much. That was the extent of her pain. And she, she couldn't look at me. There was a distance between us. We were in the same room, but it was icy. It was horrible. We were physically close, but we were emotionally and relationally miles apart. I said to her, she said to me, I don't want to talk about it. And I said, we must talk about it. I know I've hurt you. I'm sorry, but we have to talk it through. If we don't talk it through, we won't be reconciled. But for us to be reconciled, Leanne has to forgive me. She has to absorb all that pain into herself, what I've done to her. And you know what happened is Leanne basically said, okay, I'll forgive you, Steve. She started crying uncontrollably with almost howls that it's so painful because of what I've done to her. For five or ten minutes. She absorbed the pain of what I've done so she could forgive me so we could be reconciled. She was gracious. She had every right not to. If Leanne hadn't done that, our relationship was in tatters. Hosea did it for Gomer. He pays the price. He absorbs the pain. Jesus did it for all of us. Now, for me then to treat Leanne's forgiveness lightly and go, I just do it again and you'll forgive me. <laughs> you just can't do that. When you understand what Jesus did, it's to trample on his love to say it's easy for him to forgive us. It's not easy. And the story of Gomer and the story of Israel and the story of our lives show that how often we treat God's forgiveness and his love lightly. It's a wonderful love. It's a relentless love. It's a passionate love. It's an unconditional love. But it's such a costly love. You can't treat this lightly. Now, the cross of Christ says beyond all doubt, sin really matters. And it needs to be punished. And there needs to be judgment. But the cross beyond all doubt says God loves us. Do you remember in chapter 1 there was this internal dilemma in the heart of God? One minute he's saying, call these children Jezreel because punishment is coming. Call this next child Loruhama because they're not loved. Call this next child Loami because you're not my people. And you're thinking, God is doing this. He's going to divorce his people. And then he says, but I must fulfill my vows. So how does this reconcile the love of God and the judgment of God? Well, it's at the cross. Where Jesus takes the punishment, he dies in our place, he's abandoned by God, he's called not my son or not my child. So we can become sons of God. There's a beautiful song that says, heaven's peace 
and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. That's the cross, heaven's peace. And perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. If you want to return to the Lord, you have to really get the cross and what it costs. The forgiveness is free, you can't earn it, it's always on offer, but it's not cheap and it's not to be treated lightly. And so how do you not treat it lightly? Well, you have to then separate yourself from idols, from these false lovers. Jesus wants your heart, he wants you back. He wants you like Hosea to say, you must not have any sex with any men for a while. We need to get back on track. And you need to say to God, there's things I need to say, no, I just need to, I just need to deal with this. I need to just say no, I need to just get a probationary period going so I can really commit in a full way. I can't have two masters, I can't be serving two things, I can't dabble with sin and enjoy your forgiveness. I've just got to say no. And that's what Hosea asked Gomer to do. And that's what we've got to do. When you know this forgiveness, you can't live by your old standards. Hosea asked Gomer to commit to life change. You have to repent and say sorry and turn from these things. You can't dabble. You can't make excuses at a love so magnificent as this. It's too wonderful. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. So this leads us to the third point, the trembling heart. Just look at the last verse of the chapter, verse 5. At the end of verse 5, it says, Afterwards the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Now the last days are the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. We live in the last days. What is the sign that we're the people of God? What is the sign that we've experienced his forgiveness? What is the sign that we've said no to false lovers? Our heart trembles at the wonder that we could even be forgiven and loved. We don't. It's, we, our hearts are so. With awe and there's wonder, and we come trembling to the blessings. We get the blessings, but we come trembling. We don't come. Oh yeah, God owes me this. No, wow! I can't believe I've been forgiven. I can't believe this. I'm trembling in fear before such holy, beautiful, costly love. That, in a relationship with God, there needs to be joy and ease and freedom and intimacy. But that, that's a, you must have that in a relationship with God. But it must be matched with awe and wonder and trembling that this is even possible at all. And so many Christians say, I've lost the joy of my faith. It's because they've forgotten how much it costs God to forgive you. And you think it's easy and you lose the awe. And you don't take holiness seriously. And you just think, oh, yeah, well, if you know what it costs God to forgive you, the awe remains year after year. We cannot take this for granted. So as I finish this evening, we're done now. I want to suggest that God wants our hearts. That's what the book of Hosea is saying. I want you, your heart, I want you fully in a deeper way than I've ever had you. If Hosea and Gomer ever got to being really man and wife again, that relationship would have been so much deeper because Hosea would have had to give all those years of betrayal. Bizarrely, God uses our sin and our spiritual adultery and our mess to actually take us deeper into his love. It's a mystery, but it's a mystery we should penetrate. He actually uses all those messed up years and those things we do wrong to take us deeper into the love and the forgiveness. So God wants our hearts like that. He wants us to seek him and return to him with joy, 
but with a trembling heart, marvelling at his forgiveness and love, committing ourselves to rid ourselves of these false lovers and come fully into a relationship with him.